You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 27th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. The Emmy Award-winning Cara Santa Maria. <laughs> Howdy. Yay. Jay Novella. Hola. And Evan Bernstein. <laughs> I have no Emmy, but I'm here. So, Kara, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Well deserved. Tell us about the award. This is an LA Emmy, your second, I understand, but you won recently. Yes. Tell us about it. I, I got one last year. It's the local um, Emmy Awards. Most major markets have their own Emmy Awards. The interesting thing about the LA Emmys is that the Television Academy of Los Angeles awards the LA Emmys. And the Television Academy of Los Angeles is also the awarding body of the um, primetime Emmys. Mm -hmm. So the trophies look the same, except the LA Emmy trophies are like baby versions <laughs> of the big Emmys. Um, a friend of mine has a real Emmy. I'm not that mine's not a real Emmy, but has the type of Emmy that you're used to seeing on TV. And so we always joke about um, having Emmy battles. Mm -hmm. So now I have two. Emmy envy. My, my two little ones can take hers on. But yeah, last year I won one for a piece I did for a local show I work on called SoCal Connected. It's on um, a public TV station here. We do really you know, good journalism on a budget. And I did a piece about our local natural history museum of LA County and about a cool insect citizen science program that they did. So that was really great. Um, it was my first year working on the show. So it was a big surprise that I won in, in that feature category. And then this year, uh, our show won for best public affairs program remote. Wow. That's cool. great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, well, you're going to bring us some of that Emmy award-winning talent with what's the word? <laughs> I am. So this week's word was actually recommended um, by at Skeptic Problems on Twitter. I love that Twitter handle. I wonder what his skeptic problems are. Probably the same as ours. <laughs> and this week's word is neoteny, oh, which yeah. is also known know as is. pedomorphism. Yay! Everyone knows what it is. Yeah, neoteny, pedomorphism. These um, these terms refer to the retention of juvenile characteristics in adult individuals of a species. So this can sometimes occur, you know, what we think of as randomly because of different types of genetic mutation, but it's often the outcome of selective breeding or artificial selection, um, as we typically see it in dog domestication. If you think about most dogs, they have really big eyes. They have very puppy-like features, even when they're full-grown. And they bark? Yeah, they bark. Their ears flop. Their tails wag. There's a lot of things that we oh. bred into modern dogs that are very different from wolves and really do retain those kind of juvenile characteristics. So uh, the next time you run into your dog, you can be like, God, you're so pedomorphic. <laughs> Humans are pedomorphic chimps. Yes. Yeah, we are. We are. We are pedomorphic chimps for sure. I remember a picture of of a baby chimp and an adult chimp, and the baby chimp, the, the proportions of the head were surprisingly human-like. And then you look at the adult chimp, and it was surprisingly not human-like with the yeah. sloping, you know, sloping forehead, et cetera. It was really dramatic. Yeah, and obviously there are a lot of, you know uh – evolutionary theories as to why we would breed things to retain these juvenile traits um, and why 
juvenile organisms have those traits to begin with and or why it is that we react to them, that mothers react to these typical types of juvenile traits like large eyes, high-pitched voices, really big heads, like big bobbleheads. You mm-hmm. know, babies are very bobbleheady. Um, but there's also another definition of neoteny. It, it also can refer to a biological process that's also known as pedogenesis, which is a little bit different but related in meaning. So specifically here... Uh, We're talking about the production of offspring by an organism while it's still in its juvenile or its larval stage, which occurs in some insects. And that actually eliminates the adult portion of the life cycle altogether. So they can actually breed while they're still juvenile and then they don't mature to adulthood. That's also called neoteny in evolutionary or developmental biology, which is interesting. The etymology of the term uh, was first used around the turn of the 20th century, and it was borrowed from neoteny, similar word, probably pronounced differently, slightly different spelling, ending in an I-E in German. And that was based on the Greek root neos, meaning young, and tienen, meaning to extend. So that makes perfect sense. We're extending youth into adulthood. Tienen? Yeah, I don't know. Tienen? Tienen? T-E-I-N-E-I-N. Oh. In Greek, so Tainine. We Tainine. You know, it's funny. We often get email. Not often, but once in a blue moon, we get emails from listeners who are like, "You guys are my skeptical heroes, and you know so much about science, but your Greek and Latin is atrocious." I can't pronounce (laughs) English words for crying out loud. Yeah, (laughs) my Greek is bad. Okay, (laughs) I know my Greek is terrible, but I I typically work on these, you know, in the day or two leading up to the day that we record, and so of course I often don't have time to like reach out to a an etymologist. Is that an actual job title? Etymologist, probably. Yeah, an etymologist. Yeah, to reach out and say, hey, can you tell me how to pronounce that? And honestly, can anybody really speak ancient Greek? Sure, there's somebody out there really? that can. Yeah, Zeus, Apollo. Yeah, but, are, but how do you know if your pronunciations are accurate? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good. That's a good. That's a very good point. Time machine. All right, Jay, you're going to start off the news items with uh, news of another another crappy lawsuit. Well, as many of you know, mm. including Bob, mm. Andrew Wakefield released a film recently called "Vaxxed from Cover Up to Catastrophe." It's very dramatic. The film, the film has been criticized for its lack of truthiness. And uh, in case you don't know, let me give you the quick history of Mr. Wakefield. Of course, this is all in my opinion. And Mr. Wakefield is a public figure, so I don't have to worry about getting sued. Right, Steve? (laughs) Oh, you can can get sued. Anyone can sue. You just won't have a case. That's right. Yeah. But it'll still cost me a half a million dollars to say what I want to say. Only if you want to defend yourself. So, uh, Mr. Wakefield used to be a gastroenterologist and a researcher, and back in 1998, he published his infamous research paper in The Lancet that outlined his findings that there is a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. <gasps> I, didn't, I didn't know what I'm about to tell you next. The study also showed a link between the MMR vaccine and bowel disease. Did you guys know that? Actually, it yes. only showed a link to bowel disease. The word <laughs> autism doesn't even occur in the paper. He really only what? made that link after the fact in like he, his d- dealings with the press. Oh, gosh. It's, that's even worse. It's pretty cool, though, isn't it? Yeah, it was, it was more showing. And then the, the hypothesis is that the leaky gut syndrome, the bowel disease, is then allows the measles virus into the bloodstream, and then that causes... Causes autism. Down in your gutty what's. Yeah. Well, the uh, the funny thing about science, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy, 
But, uh, you know, other scientists try to reproduce the findings that get published. So uh, so somebody's wacky scientists went out there and decided to reproduce Wakefield's findings, and they couldn't reproduce a shred of it, huh? So in 2004, <laughs> Brian Deere, who we interviewed last year and Brian. is awesome, by the way, he found undisclosed, undisclosed financial conflicts of interest, and it turns out Wakefield was developing his own MMR vaccine. Whoa! No, no, so his just, paper- just monovalent measles vaccine, not MMR. So the right. MMR Sorry. is a trivalent vaccine. So he was trashing that so that he could then market his measles-only vaccine. As Total a, conflict as of a, interest. Say, as a safer Nothing alternative. Nothing totally sleazeball about that. He was also getting money from lawyers who were suing over the Association of MMR and Autism. So oh, and like, when I say getting money, I mean like hundreds of thousands of dollars, not small amounts of money. First, most of his co-authors, once Brian Deere published his, his findings, most of his co-authors of the study withdrew their support. Then the General Medical Council, the GMC, which is the body that governs all medical practitioners in the UK, they conducted an inquiry and found Wakefield guilty of unnecessary invasive medical procedures to children and lumbar punctures that Wakefield was acting without the necessary ethical approval from the review board. And in 2010, the GMC issued 36 charges against Wakefield. Four of them were counts of dishonesty. Twelve involved abusing developmentally challenged children you know, but Wakefield cares so much about the kids. Uh, the, then the GMC ruled that he failed in his duties, a quote, that he failed in his duties as a responsible consultant and that he acted both against the interests of his patients and dishonestly and irresponsibly in his published work. The Lancet retracted his paper, his 1998 publication, stating that his findings were falsified. And then three months later, Wakefield was stripped of his ability to practice medicine in the UK. What do they call it? They struck him from the record. He was Steve? struck off. Yeah. Struck off. Struck man. off. So, <laughs> sadly, Wakefield's deception, I'm so sorry for this guy, it led to a decline in vaccination rates in many places. And it, unfortunately, um, a lot of people died from, uh, from diseases that we freaking cured or, you know, at least pushed into obscurity. So, uh, Wakefield to this day he won't admit his fraud and he still defends his research. So, now that you know the facts about Wakefield, Back to his movie, Vaxxed, from cover-up to catastrophe. So Wakefield has been trying to get people to see his film, and it was removed from the Tribeca Film Festival. We talked about that. It was all due to a blowback from people around the world. And many skeptics um, have been trying to educate people about the film and how it's not accurate and how it preys on the parents of autistic children. One of them, in particular, Fiona Petit O'Leary, she founded an organization called Autistic Rights Together, or, or A-R-T, art. So this organization helps represent people with autism in the hopes of diminishing like the negative stigma that comes with having autism. And so Fiona has been criticizing the film very publicly and, and the people who made the film decided to sue her or at least threaten to sue her because they want her to stop her public criticism. So here's what happened. They sent Fiona a letter and they demanded that she stop her defamatory remarks about the film and that she cease and desist in her interference with the distribution of the film and making any statement to anyone anywhere about the film. Like she can't even like talk to her mom about it. Yeah, I like I guess. that. So they went on to say that if she didn't stop, they'd intend to file an action against her. It's got a lot of teeth in it. They will, they will ask for punitive damage. See, I can't even say it without laughing. Yeah. Punitive damages here. They want punitive <laughs> damages and financial compensation for all losses to their business directly resulting from her actions. You know, nothing is really stopping the filmmakers from filing a lawsuit, like Steve said. 
And Steve and I know just how easy that is, unfortunately. And especially if you have a huge sum of money, I have no idea if Wakefield or his producers have a lot of money, but it does take quite a bit of money to follow up on a lawsuit. But what it's probably very likely that they're just threatening to scare her into silence and any other criticism. Yeah, that's absolutely so, boilerplate, cease and desist letter, totally over-the-top lawyer-speak intimidation. It, it is the prelude to suing. It is a very strong sign that they are intending to sue because that's sort of the first step that you take. But people also do that just to intimidate people, to, to yep. threaten the lawsuit. And a, it's a so lot of people, if you, don't, if you don't have the resources, you know, to defend yourself, you know, most lawyers will tell you, well, you have a few options. You could just comply with their demands and save yourself the trouble of a lawsuit. You can tell them to go pound sand um, or you can preemptively sue them. Actually, sometimes that's an option. Uh, you know, the idea that their tactic here is to try to scare her. You know, imagine if, for example, the producers of uh, Bob, what movie sucked? Like uh, the last Airbender <laughs> movie. Message from, space. <laughs> message from space. Or message from space. Imagine the producers of Message from Space, one of the worst movies of all time. They decided to threaten lawsuits for saying that their movies sucked. Right? Is that how professional filmmakers act when their work is reviewed? I mean, Rotten Tomatoes would have to get sued every day for all, all the <laughs> you know the comments on there. So yeah, this is a uh, you know hopefully it is just a scare tactic, but it's still a, the wrong way to go about dealing with criticism. You know, how about get new research that proves your hypothesis, Wakefield? You know, how about you just if you still believe in it, go back and prove it in the laboratory, and then we'll take it from there. Well, you know, he's had twenty years to do it, and he's not doing it. Yeah, I mean, he basically moved to the U.S. and continued his his ridiculous uh, anti-vaccine propaganda. Just made a career for himself as a anti-vaccine crank, and this is this is what cranks do. You know, if they uh, they they try to intimidate legitimate criticism by suing by threatening to sue, which again, it's unfortunately can be very effective. Now, a lot of people criticize this film. Why aren't they going over, going after other people as well? What, what singled them out, these folks, for this lawsuit? She's done a very good job of putting them down. She's and showing all the Yeah, she's getting, she's getting some, uh, gaining some ground and uh, it has had an impact without a doubt. Yeah, but I mean, it's unfortunate, again, that you know, a suit that would be utterly baseless. Criticizing a, any movie, as Jay said, is fair game, let alone one that is a, is a documentary that seeks to change public policy, right? So you're going to shut down conversation and discussion and criticism over a documentary that seeks to change public health policy. Good luck. I mean, th th there's no way that they would make any progress in the suit. And this is purely for intimidation purposes. They are bullies. Yeah, they're bullies, just intellectual bullies. Pure bullies. All right, Bob, tell us about Super Atoms. Yes, this was quite interesting. Uh, researchers and engineers have, for the first time, linked superatoms to make molecules, suggesting that these new building blocks could essentially offer materials with tailor-designed magnetic and electrical properties. Uh, so, yeah, this one is fascinating. Uh, hold on to your beanies for the, with this one. Uh, your first thought, though, is probably what the hell is a superatom? Mm. And, Jay, I don't even want to know what your first thought was, but as a superatom is a cluster of atoms that essentially behaves like a distinct atom, uh, but a potentially new class of atom. Uh, it was discovered uh, with sodium atoms, I believe, which formed which form clusters as uh, lots of different gases do when when they're cooled from a vapor from a vapor state. And the awesome thing about them, though, is that the free electrons occupy a new set of orbitals around the entire cluster of uh, 
of atoms. Yeah. I was going to um, say, what makes what's the difference between a cluster and this and the super atom? But you just explained that. Yeah, and up. so so and for order, ordinary atoms, it's not really the nucleus, but the electron orbitals that determine the chemical properties of an element. That's the key right there. So the fact that they, you could actually kind of tailor make these orbitals, then you could actually kind of tailor make then the, the chemical properties. So so by adding various unrelated atoms to a super atom, then you can create a mimic of other atoms. Uh, so you, you might say then, well, why not just use the regular atom though? Why go to the bother of creating a super atom if you're, if you're just going to mimic another atom? And that makes sense. But the, uh, the element mimic might be quite less expensive. For example, palladium. Palladium is used as a catalyst in jet engines. Uh, it's quite important, as you might imagine, but it's $100 a gram. But if you use some sort of zirconium oxide super atom, it would cost two cents a gram. So the, the potential for m- money savings is is immense, uh, but the, even that's kind of small potatoes, though, because you can create potentially super atoms to behave like one element, but also do something completely different as well that no atom does, or or maybe you can create a whole new class of atom with no mimic in natural in the natural world at all. Lots of possibilities here. Uh, amazing potential. Um, some scientists are looking at this as a potential third dimension to the now two-dimensional table uh, of uh, periodic table of elements. Uh, so imagine if you, with the creation of, of a whole sort of new super atom elements, kind of expanding out into the into the uh, into the z-axis. So uh, that would be fascinating. Imagine an overhaul of the entire periodic table. So, uh, but even as cool as all that is, that's not even the new stuff. That's the old stuff. That's that's at least a decade old. So what's uh, the new breakthrough now is that uh, some guys that lit, led the project, uh, Colin Nichols, Knuckles, Michael Steigerwald, and Xavier Roy uh, et al., um, including the, their whole crew at Columbia University in New York, they have for the first time linked two and three superatoms into one molecule or perhaps a supermolecule. I'm not sure what you would even call that thing. Um, so they, what they did was they built their superatom cores out of six cobalt and eight selenium atoms. Selenium or selenium? I think it's selenium. They then made what's called these ligands, which, so they took pieces of other atoms and they, uh, they made them projecting out from the, from the superatom, like arms that link to other superatoms, kind of like basically a chemical bond. That's, that's pretty much what they did. So you can bond the atoms together using these ligands to make these molecules. Let's see. So from the, from their abstract, uh, they said these superatom molecules have a rich electrochemical profile and chart a clear path to a whole family of superatom molecules with new and unusual collective properties. I just see so much potential in this. It's just so interesting. So what can you do with it? What's the future uh, of this? Where are we, what are we going to see in five or 10 years? Of course, that's hard to say, but the researchers want to build much larger assemblages of these superatoms to create new types of, say, solid state electronics uh, with bespoke optical, electrical, and magnetic properties. That's a new word I found, uh-huh. bespoke. Kara, Aww. what's bespoke? It's like custom made, like a bespoke suit is made just for you. Excellent. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, what in God's name is he talking about bespoke? I had to look it up. So cool word. I d- yeah, I, that's a fashion thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> like it. I don't like it very much, so I may never use it ever again, but it's it's still there. <laughs> so another another option is superconductivity. Uh, 
So you guys have probably heard of Cooper pairs, Cooper pairs of electrons, electrons that kind of pair up. And they are, that is essentially the defining aspect of what superconductivity is. They've done some research into aluminum superatoms and they've been shown, it seems like they are forming these Cooper pairs, the hallmarks of superconductivity at a temperature around 100, 100 Kelvin. Uh, that may sound quite cold. That's minus 280 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so what, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because if you just took bulk aluminum metal and you made that superconductive, you would have to bring it down to near one Kelvin. That's minus 457 degrees Fahrenheit. So by taking this metal and making it into a superatom, it basically, uh, it basically made it, it increased the temperature at which it superconducts by a hundred degrees Kelvin. So that's, that's big. That's a huge, that's a huge jump. Who knows? Uh, how other types of elements will be able to jump once you turn them into, into these super atom clusters. Who knows? We, we may potentially finally reach that, that elusive dream of room temperature con- superconductivity. Uh, don't hold your breath though. I've been dreaming about that for about a quarter century. So whatever. Oh, that's so nerdy. Oh, that's like the nerdiest thing you've ever <laughs> said. <laughs> so we could I remember when those articles came out my Uncle Jay Steve Uncle, yeah. ba- Uncle Bob Uncle was Bob, up yeah. we're talking about holy crap <laughs> you know super you know room temperature super, super conductivity imagine a spool of wire that that's super conducting in your room whatever where is it where the hell is it oh well uh, they've made big, they've made they've made they've made big advances we're not there yet but I still have hope so uh, let's see oh we could also create a cheaper and more effective catalysts in chemical processing and in catalytic converters in automobiles it could even be used potentially uh, to, for new sources of energy I mean it's just so wide open there um, uh, one quote I found, uh, God, his last name is Murray. I do not know his first, first name. Murray! Uh, this work <laughs> provides a powerful example that the building blocks of solid-state chemistry are, are no longer limited to nature's periodic table. A tailor-made or bespoke molecular clusters can serve as artificial atoms in a greatly expanding building set. So, so these, uh, these new building block clusters are like having a Lego set and your Lego set has 90 some odd different shapes. And then all of a sudden, Hey, here you are. Somebody hands you scores or hundreds of brand new shapes with very weird and very helpful properties. that just expands the possibilities incredibly. Knuckles uh, said, I mentioned him earlier. He had a good quote. He said, we think this isn't even the tip of the iceberg. It's the ice cube on, on the tip of the iceberg. Jeez. So uh, yeah, we could see this thing just explode in five, ten years, Let's who knows? Not. So keep, yeah. So keep your eyes on this one, kids. Uh, I think this one's uh, got some interesting possibilities. Yeah, it's like one of those things that it's either going to revolutionize material science, or you know, becomes or, an obscure thing that only nerds know. Can't about. really, yeah. yeah, yeah this is great, I but there's not uh, much we can or do. Or maybe with somewhere it. in between. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, I think at the very least, it'll be somewhere in between. These uh, these research groups are even now they're hinting at some discoveries they've made that are incredibly fascinating that they they won't go into too much detail with. But basically, you know, like I said, these tailor made molecules that you you know to create things like solid state electronics that that have properties. You know, imagine. Oh yeah, for this use, we'd need this this amount of magnetism, and we need this kind this kind of you know, this type of of optical whatever and, and you could just completely make it to whatever specs you need just by having the various atoms collected together in this assemblage of uh, these clusters. So uh, that is what's fascinating, that they can just like tailor-make these things for whatever application they have. Well, hello, Evan. 
Oh, hey, Steve. How you doing? Can you tell us about the update on the uh, cloned sheep? Uh, yes, I can do that. We've all heard of Dolly the sheep. Dolly. Well, many of us have. I have to take you back to the early days of the internet. July 5, 1996, a sheep named Dolly makes history by becoming the first mammal cloned from an adult somatic cell using the process of nuclear transfer. Now, do you know what a somatic cell is, Evan? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Now, uh, tr- <laughs> it's a body cell, not a germ yeah. cell. It's everything other than a germ cell, which are like the, the uh, sperm and ova, the gametes. Sperm and yeah. eggs, yeah. Makes yeah, sense. Baby. So it has the double complement of your DNA, not the single. Right. Real quick, here's true or false, guys. One at a time, just give me a true or a false. Dolly was named so because she was cloned from a mammary cell, and therefore they thought of Dolly Parton and decided to name the sheep Dolly. Steve, true, true or false? Ha! I would say that's false. Uh, it's uh, true. Steve says false. I Bob say says true. true. Jay, say said, true. Jay says true. Kara, I, Kara says... I don't know how I feel about it, but I kind of want it to be true. And it is true. <laughs> <laughs> According to the internet, it is true. Now, uh, so after... <laughs> after it's a big proof of concept. So after cloning was successfully demonstrated through the production of Dolly, many other large mammals were cloned. Pigs, deer, horses, and bulls. So it really did uh, mark a new era. I, I think it's important to point out that um, you're really rolling the dice with this uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer. Is that it? Um, yeah. Because so few, very infrequently does it work. So yeah. you got you to do it a bunch of times. Like, oh, we got one. This one's cool. Uh, those those ten or twenty, sorry, in the garbage, whatever. Dolly was the only lamb that survived to adulthood from two hundred seventy seven attempts. So yeah, the ratio is oh, yeah, wow, not worse than not, I not good, <laughs> not good. But Dolly didn't live very long, did she? No, not as long as uh, other you know sheep who were come to being the uh, the traditional way. About half the lifespan, uh, and she had uh, some issues in her life. Most notably, she Tell suffered from. She suffered from osteoarthritis at a relatively young oh. age. And then she developed lung disease, but that was deemed uh, to have been caused by a virus, which is common among lambs that live indoors as opposed to outdoor, and they had to keep it indoors. I thought I read that her telomeres were uh, extra short. Short. Yes, they were. They were absolutely short. So right. who knows? Right. If, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and they had to euthanize her in 2003, so only six and a half years old. Um, but but the legacy of Dolly lived on because, as you see, scientists actually cloned other lambs from Dolly. They made clones of the clone. Wait, Fascinating. Are, are you sure it was from Dolly or just from the same parent? Yeah, well, I don't think it was from Dolly. They're not Dolly's clones. They're Dolly's siblings. Then you're right. They're like, I'm I'm totally using my orphan black knowledge here. <laughs> That all of the, they call themselves sestras, um, on Orphan Black, all of the different clones that came from a source, uh, source DNA, they're all sisters. But they're yeah, so you're a, we'll you're a, they made, sister. you're a clone of the source of the cells, but multiple clones of the same source are not clones of each other. They're, they're clone, clone siblings. Yeah. They're twins. They're still identical twins. And the scientists want you to know that those clones are doing, well, just fine so far. And they're already up to nine years old. So they've made it past the age that Dolly made it. And they've gone through a battery of tests and, uh, and evaluations to see exactly what condition they are in. And they are in excellent health is what they are saying. And, and they're not just older than Dolly, though. Aren't they like, like senior citizen sheep? Right? Well, they're, they're approaching, these sheep live to be, from what I've read, 11 to 12 okay. years old. So they're approaching, 
the end of their what would be a normal lifespan for this uh, for this species of sheep. Okay. It's so weird thinking about how long animals live. It sucks. It just sucks. Well, well some, some animals, animals live uh, a long turtles time. Turtles and others. Yeah, like crows. Dogs. I need dogs and cats to live. You know, live like together. Jay, like Jay's stupid bird that lives <laughs> ninety years. <laughs> Bob, you're looking at it all wrong. You just need to keep cloning. The dog yeah. and the cat. Well, yeah. Well, if you, well, and you'll be fine. Well, if you can clone memory, then yeah, I'd, I would agree. Their names are Daisy, Debbie, Diana, and Denise. I see a pattern. Uh, the sheep will be continued to be raised and treated until the age of 10, and then researchers will, oh, put them down and conduct a closer post-mortem So you study. say they're going to be raised and slaughtered. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, uh, yeah. And for those so, who don't know, that is from what, Evan? Uh, Dr. Strange Dr. Love. Dr. Strange Love, thank you. <laughs> Wait, when, when was that in Dr. Strange Love? Uh, at the very end, when they're talking about we cannot afford a mine shaft gap, and then um, <laughs> P- uh, Peter Sellers, as the borrowed Nazi scientist, is, <laughs> is explaining to them how they could populate the mine shafts (laughs) and that sleep you know animals could be raised and slaughtered (laughs) it would not be difficult mine fuhrer I'm sorry I mean Mr. President so can we just get it can we just get it over with and just clone a person please let's just do it just so it's done we could do it we could do it we could do it we could do it yeah didn't the aliens already do it like five or six years ago oh gosh yeah they got they got the short end of that stick didn't they Nobody, be- nobody believed them for some reason. Yeah, then they said, well, well yeah, we kind of did lie, but we got a lot of free publicity out of it, as if that justifies it. So there you have it, Dolly and her and Dolly and her sisters. So basically, the technology has improved. Dolly was the first one. You That's know, right. About half mm-hmm. the normal lifespan, then the, the subsequent ones are all just perfectly fine. So far, so good. So far, so good. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Kara, tell us about the neuroscience of being cool. Hey. Yeah. I was reading an interesting article um, on quartz by Mark Bain called The Neuroscience of Cool. And while the article only, you know, briefly glossed over a few studies attempting to f- define what it means to be cool, uh, like it actually mostly focused just on historical uses of the term and what sociologists have to say about it. I did notice uh, two fields colliding in an interesting way throughout the text, neuroscience and economics. And I think that's really what I want to focus on. But before we get into that, I was wondering from you guys, what do you think it means for something to be cool? W- what's the definition of cool? For me, for me, being cool is you don't give a shit. You know, it's like not, okay. nothing phases you. It's like whatever, t- you know, kind of attitude, not, you know, not overly emotional or sensitive. It's just like, you know, just going with the flow and not just getting too, too worked up about something. To me, that's part of, at least part of the essence of, of yeah. what people call I think cool. Those, those are components gotcha. that make somebody cool. But I think uh-huh. cool itself is, is a certain competent, I th- and calm uh, charisma. I think charisma has to be a component of and, it, and and confidence. I think confidence is important. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. And you're all. You guys agree? You all. Well, I agree with all that. I also would throw in that you. I don't think can deem yourself cool. It's up to other people or groups of people ah, or organizations yeah. to determine what that if you are in fact cool or yeah, not cool. Absolutely, calling I yourself like cool is uncool. Is so uncool. Agreed. Yeah, but I'll I'll call so, I'll call you guys cool if you call me cool. Uh, no, but we cool. say 
we would call somebody cool or define them as cool, but we would also say something is cool, mm-hmm. right? So there's and how is something cool? Because something something can't be aloof. That's different. Yeah, something, that's completely something different. Something is cool when it's when it's intriguing in a uh, in a clever way to me. You know, like something has an aspect of it that is surprising and and mm. good. You know, utilitarian or good. Um, I like this because I feel like you guys are actually showing a dividing line around your age a little bit. What? Evan, are you closer in age to Steve and Bob or to Jay? Jay. Okay. So here's the thing. The definition of cool seems to have really shifted a lot over the last century. It's generally accepted that it first emerged from African-American jazz culture during like around the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. That's when the the use of cool as we sort of know it, cool being definitive of, of a personality, um, started. And then it was kind of co-opted by white culture and society at large immediately after the Second World War. Um, really through people like Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando and James Dean, um, you know, on the, the big screen, they sort of epitomized this rebellion and it was an attitude and speech. But honestly, in a lot of ways, one of the most important social things that happened there is that they started wearing denim and they dressed a certain way, which became incredibly identifiable as cool blue jeans and leather jackets. Before this time, The word cool was only used to describe an element that you guys were describing, which is a calmness and inability to be rattled. So when you think cool hand Luke, Mm -hmm. like if somebody had a cool hand, they were very calm. That's the only way that cool was described prior to that. Then cool as a phrase started to define like a person who's really cool, who's really rebellious, who, as you said, Bob, kind of doesn't give a shit. Um, but we're actually starting to see a shift even away from that definition in more millennial culture, which we'll get to. Oh, man, I got to tell you, I got that's... two daughters thick, <laughs> thick in millennial culture, and they are redefining <laughs> all of our terms. I know. Yep. They, they have, I mean, yep. they have, they have to get off our stop. proverbial – yeah, get off our tell proverbial lawns. No, it's, it's fine. I mean, but it's amazing the degree to which they are reinventing the the, the cultural language. I like mean, what, Steve? Give me Julia some uses all uses every word wrong. So, so it's the, most, <laughs> the, the recent example was so she uses the word edgy to mean someone who's a poser. Hilarious. I would I would never know it's that if you didn't tell wrong. me that I wouldn't either. I'm edgy, okay. wow, that makes me feel old. But edgy, what you say to edgy is a term that's always used to describe me in TV pitches. Yes. Uh oh. Right, because I'm counter. I look counter culture. Like I'm I'm a thirty something, but I'm tattooed and I'm pierced, but I represent science, and so people are like, oh, she's the edgy science. Apparently, you're a poser, and of course, they don't mean it to mean she's a poser. <laughs> they mean it to mean she looks kind of cool and different. Can I tell you something, though, Karen? So Jay and I were talking about this. You're definitely edgy, but what's funny is you're like Mormon edgy. Don't take that <laughs> the wrong way, <laughs> because your your baseline is is so clean cut that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you're not street edgy. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> also, the funny thing is I have headshots, right? From the work that you do, you have to provide headshots. And I have different headshots. I have like my lip ring and glasses, kind of nerdy, quote, edgy headshot, which is what I look like in my day to day. And then when I take off my glasses and my lip ring, my headshot looks like I could sell toothpaste. Yeah, It's so commercial and so girl next door. You're right. It's a bit Mormon. <laughs> I love it. That's so. But now, apparently, edgy means poser. My entire world. Yeah, is right. <laughs> I'm freaking. Well, we got, out. We got why is she doing point. that, Steve? 
That's Why? what was she doing? Why is she doing it? I don't think she's doing it on purpose. She's doing it because cool evolves. And this is something that is really interesting. Actually, I feel like there's something about having a scientific conversation about cool that immediately makes this conversation uncool. <laughs> but we will venture on. So in this Quartz article, Bain, the, the author, talks about two researchers. Weirdly, one of them is named Quartz, which is kind of confusing. Yeah. His name is Stephen Quartz. He's a Caltech neuroscientist and philosopher. Um, and the other uh, researcher is Annette Asp, who's a political scientist. She focuses on marketing, and she was a former project manager in Quartz's lab. So the two of them have been focusing on the idea of cool for many, many years in their research, so much so that they actually wrote a popular science book about it just last year called Cool, How the Brain's Hidden Quest for Cool Drives Our Economy and Shapes Our World. And they, of course, posit that coolness is such a strong um thing in our culture. It's such a strong undercurrent that it actually does have a huge impact on our economy, which makes sense. Oh, sure. So they they wanted to figure out what's happening in the brain of cool. Like what are there any neuroscientific or, or neurological correlates of cool? So in one study, they had uh, design students categorize a big group of images, things like different types of clothes, cars, celebrities, whatever, as cool or uncool. And then they put a new group of design students in an fMRI and they showed them the photos. And we know all of the issues that come along with fMRI studies, but they did find something interesting. When these design students looked at things that the other students generally categorized as cool, they had a significantly increased amount of activity in the medial prefrontal cortex than when they looked at things that were not categorized as cool. Mm. So they actually saw that there was some sort of executive function that was happening at a higher level when people were thinking about whether or not something was cool, which is in many ways kind of self-reflective. Now, these authors, of course, admit that cool is subjective, but as none of us can deny, it trends. And those trends are both top down. As we know via marketing, you know, big businesses, uh, clothing designer makes something. They target it to the, to youth in a very specific way. This is cool. This is cool. You should buy this. This is cool. People buy it. It's cool. But there's also bottom up, like street style, right? People who like wear their clothes a certain way or, or, or do vintage style. And then, of course, the, the clothing designers start to copy that. Quartz and Asp also hypothesized based on their studies that this experience of cool has social benefits. Um, that sure, being cool is still a bit rebellious, but it's kind of like rebelling with partners in crime. And it defines us and it feels good to be cool. And in doing this um, a study on this topic, I actually came across an article published in the Journal of Individual Differences called Coolness, an Empirical Investigation by a psychologist who has, unfortunately, a really uncool name, um, Ilan Dar Nimrod. Sorry. Oh, whoa. <laughs> so bad. Um, he's at the University of Rochester Medical Center. And he found in this study where he was basically just asking people to define what it means to be cool. And then he had them look at a list of adjectives, like personality trait terms, and and sort of cluster which ones were cool and which ones were uncool. And he found that on average, the rebelliousness was only second seat to some of the things that Jay was saying earlier, pro-social and positive traits. So people that were nice, people that were attractive, people that were confident, successful, young people tended to say that that was more cool than people that were aloof rude, rebellious. So I, I found that kind of interesting that we're starting to see a shift. 
But but back to what really interested me about this Quartz article is this idea of neuroscience meeting economics. So a good friend of mine, also a, a regular um, guest on, on my personal podcast, Talk Nerdy, is a graduate of Caltech's PhD program in computational neuroscience. Her name is Tegan Wall, and she has a lot of degrees. She's a really um, overachiever. She has degrees in poli-sci, economics, and neuroscience. And she, I asked her to define economics because I had her on my podcast and she did that and really taught me a lot about what economics is. And here's what she said. Quote, economics is the study of the allocation of finite resources to fulfill unlimited wants. It assumes people behave rationally based on their preferences at any given time. The marriage between economics and neuroscience tries to get at how these preferences are affected by psychology, biology, and all the messy biases and inconsistencies in our brains. See, I always thought that economics meant money, but that's just one area of focus in the field. And as a whole, economics really is about decision making. And without an injection of brain and behavioral sciences, honestly, it's mostly theoretical. That's why I'm fascinated by the field of neuroeconomics, which actually seems to have been developed at Caltech. Um, it's a lot like skepticism. You know, we have to understand our own errors of thinking so that we can make more informed decisions. And it does seem like the types of decisions that we make have a whole hell of a lot to do with whether or not we think something is cool. So what would you say the bottom line of that study is about the neuroscience itself, though? So there was more executive function. But did they narrow it down more than that? No, I don't think that they were. I think that they have a lot of ideas. They wrote a whole damn book about what they think is going on. But I think based on the study, the the main thing that they could really pull out of it was that this increased activation in the medial prefrontal cortex showed that there was a correlation between our own kind of personal ideas about things that are cool and sort of are um, like a mirror process, you know, that there's an there's an empathic process that's happening there, that when we think about cool, we think about cool as it's definitive to us and how we can label ourselves and how we fit in with that idea of cool, that cool really is a personal construct that's based on something outside of us, but it almost doesn't exist if we can't relate ourselves to it. Got it. But that doesn't really, I think, have any basis in whether or not cool is subjective or whether it's objective, although it does seem to be the case that there were correlations between things that were deemed as cool and this increased activation. So in some ways, at least at any given time, if you put your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the in the country, you might be able to say that certain things are objectively cool for the time being. Right. But that's a very anti-postmodern view yeah. that I hold because I think postmodernism is kind of bullshit. But those two things are not mutually exclusive at being totally temporal and cultural and yeah. still activating the same circuits in the brain. Just different things activate those circuits, and that's what's cultural. Totally. Jay, get us up to date on who's that noisy. Last week, I played this noisy, and I asked everybody to crowdsource to find out what it is because the person who recorded it had no idea. So listen to this. Okay, so a lot of fun because I got I got some uh, responses, guys. What is that, Steve? Do you want to take a guess? Some kind of bird. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Didn't you already tell us it was a bird in like Brazil? I think I did. First off, guys, thanks for guessing. Everybody that wrote in, with the exception, I think, of one person, 
actually got it right. Whoa. How do you know that? Wow. I'll say that because I did end up going into to professional bird sites and listening, and I, you know, I think I found it. And then everyone wrote in, and, and they got it right. So the first person to guess correctly, Eduardo S. He said, uh, "I think it's the gray-necked wood rail or the Saracura tres poches." poches. Uh, yep, and there's me mispronouncing all sorts of stuff. So the bottom line is he sent in a recording, which I'll play for you. So here's Eduardo's. <laughs> I like the end there. What'd you yeah. think? That, that's it, huh? That sounds cool. like yeah, it. it. That bird sounds like a monkey. Yeah, it's pretty cool, the different the different vocalizations that it can make. So then I got correct guesses from David Holly, Noble Baker, Andre Pame, and Daniel Irizarry. And the, as of today, which is Wednesday the 27th, so if anyone guesses after that, guys, sorry you didn't, didn't make the cut. But um, God, that was cool. I got a lot of fun emails from people, and like, you know, and people put time in. Like they were going through uh, professional websites that do this thing, and that was it. So there you go. I loved it. So I put it to you, anyone listening that's interested. If you listen to something recently or have a recording of something that you can't identify and you want me to crowdsource it on the SGU, send it to me. I will take a listen, and if it meets my expert criteria, which means it has to be cool, right, Kara? Cool? <laughs> right, right. I will use it. Um, so here you go. Here is this week's Who's That Noisy? That is messed up and creepy. I love it. You thought that was creepy? That to yeah. me just sounded like what it sounds like when you're sitting in a terminal at the airport. Oh, man. <laughs> to me, that was like something you'd hear in like a haunted house. That was huh. a demonic possession. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my first thought. So that was sent in by a listener named Jim Fisher, and Jim said, to who's that noisy? This begs to be a who's that noisy. I would assume it has already made an appearance uh, because it's such an obvious candidate. Uh, but then he goes on to talk about what it is. Very cool. It's a cool thing. I think you guys will really like it. So send me your guesses. Send me your awesome noises. And send me your crowdsourcing noises to WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you've heard us talk about The Great Courses before. Why? Because we keep talking about them. Because they're awesome. Listen, the Great Courses Plus Video Learning Service. This was made for people like us who are curious. We want to keep learning even well after we can afford college, which nobody can afford anymore. That's so what right. do we do? We, we, turn to the, we turn to the internet and we turn to awesome video producers like the Great Courses to deliver us awesome video about science and a ton of other topics. Sure. You learn about the Big Bang, learn about how the brain stores memories, about robotics and how they'll influence the future, learn about time, what time is. And there's just so many more topics. With the Great Courses Plus, you're going to get unlimited access to watch as many lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. And guys, right now, the Great Courses Plus is offering you a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including our favorite science collections, you know, 
talking about dark matter, dark energy, the inexplicable universe, the addictive brain. Medical mm. myths. Yes. <laughs> I got two. There's the medical myths and your deceptive brain. You can listen to both of those right now for free for a full month when you sign up using our special URL. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. One more time, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, well, let's move on to the next segment. Uh, instead of a news item this week, I'm going to do a special report. Uh, it's something I blogged about last week. It sparked a very interesting discussion. I thought we could talk about it. Because we love to jump feet first into really massive political, social, controversial quagmires, uh, I decided that we should talk about the question of whether or not race is real. Does race exist? Is it biologically meaningful or is it biologically meaningless as some contend? Do you guys have any initial thoughts about this? I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because when I, I've asked people like intelligent, progressive people I respect the question and the most common knee jerk I get was, well, of course it exists, right? I mean, isn't it obvious? Uh, there is a, intuitively, it certainly seems like, you know, yeah, you could, there are different people and they're, or could be separated into different races. But it's actually a very complicated and nuanced question. Yeah, sure. Uh, when I had my daughter, we well, when my wife was pregnant, we went through various tests because of our backgrounds. Uh, she's French-Canadian, I'm Jewish. And so we had to go and look for things like Tay-Sachs disease um, and be tested for that. So in that regard, I feel there is perhaps race. Or I'm not really sure how else to sort of categorize that. Yeah, then that is one of the issues that comes up is, is it useful medically? And I'll get to that. And that's okay. mainly what I was writing about when I was You're blogging right, about right. it. But you can separate it into two issues initially. So I'm just going to try to navigate through all the issues here. There's the scientific issue and then there's the social slash historical issue. So there are those who claim that race is socially and historically constructed. And actually, I wasn't even talking about that, and I'm not going to talk about that now. I'm going to talk entirely about the scientific question about mm -hmm. race. But it's funny because, you know, even though I was discussing entirely sort of the scientific issues involved, and I didn't challenge the notion that race is socially or historically constructed, a lot of people interpreted of the discussion that way. It's like, well, you can't be believe that it. You can't believe anything nuanced about it scientifically and still accept that there is a social aspect to race. It's like, well, yeah, of course race has a social aspect to it. You know, our, most people's ideas of race and what that means is, a, is there's a huge social and historical component. Some people took offense because they said, because, you know, the, the his social construct of race has been used to historically oppress certain groups and privilege other groups. Sure. I'm not contesting that either. That's fine. It's fascinating that people link the two. And I do want to talk a little bit about that up front, the, the relationship between ethical, political, social issues and related scientific issues. You know, the, the approach that we take is that, you know, science should inform the social ethical things, uh, but science can't determine them, right? Mm -hmm. There are value judgments. And we talk about the scientific issues, maybe how they relate to social and ethical issues, but we don't make value judgments. We don't impose our own value judgments on the science. So what happens frequently, and, and 
the first time I've read this concept was in The Blank Slate by Steven Pinker. I think he may be the one who really first pushed forward this idea. You shouldn't make an ethical principle dependent upon a scientific fact because then you make the ethical principle unnecessarily vulnerable to refutation of the science and it then forces you to take a particular scientific opinion which is bad, right? You want the right. science to be what it is. So like on the but issue- that never happens. That uh-huh. have, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like so if you think that, hey, like, and I again, when I wrote about it, I explicitly said, I totally believe ethically, my personal opinion is that every human being is equally deserving of respect and dignity, right? Mm-hmm. And I, of course, do not believe, on, believe in any kind of privilege or oppression according to arbitrary groups, racial, ethnic, whatever. I believe in that ethical principle regardless of what the science says about the genetics of humanity. But some people want – they want the science to be 100 percent in line with their ethic and then therefore they say, well, no, therefore race can't exist scientifically. It's biologically meaningless. It's like, well, it could or – maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but that's a separate question. And I know, Bob, you and I have had this conversation before. What if yeah. there happened to be – an actual subspecies of oh human. Oh, my God. What if like mm-hmm. Homo floresiensis, floresiensis, the hobbit, what mm-hmm. if they were still living? What if there was a population of Neanderthals? Or Neanderthal. Yeah. yeah. What if – would they be deserving of respect and dignity? Would we then have to downplay the genetic difference between us and them? Would we alter our categorizations to that – to obscure – that were different, you know, subspecies because we believe in, you know, the dignity of of all sentient beings, whatever. No, just say the science is what it is and the ethics is is what it is, you know, and, and sure the science can inform our ethical thinking, but even if we were cleanly divided into clear-cut subpopulations at a racial level, it would not alter the history, the social arguments or the ethical arguments. Okay, having said all that, let's let's now shift to pivot to the scientific question, which is fascinating. It's actually really fascinating. What it comes down to is how you define categories, which is a very generic kind of uh, idea in science. And in fact, when I wrote about it, my opening line was is Pluto a planet or a dwarf planet? Yes. Right, there there's no <laughs> objective answer to that. It all depends on how you choose to define categories, right? Yeah, that was good. It's the same thing applies to human populations, right? There's no object, and which is why my conclusion to the question, is race real? Is it biologically meaningful? There's no objective answer to that question because it all depends on how you decide to look at the data and how you, what criteria you, you decide to emphasize or to value. So there's nothing biologically different between races? So, well, you're, see, that very question assumes the existence of races. but Yeah, and that uh, depends on how you define what a race is. Yeah, we got to back up even more. So there are different things that you could look at, right? So you could – so clearly, clearly there are genetic differences when you look at the landscape of humanity across the globe, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not uniform. It's not homogenous. There are different distributions of, of genes in different locations, you know, ge- geographically located around the world. So you could, but based upon that, you could say, well, clearly there are Asians and Europeans and Africans, you know, and they're 
defined geographically and they look different. And, you know, if you look at their genes, they're different. So we're going to call those races. So yeah, but there's a lot of assumptions in there. So mm-hmm. let's unpack that a bit. Those who argue, I'll, we'll start with, we'll start with this side of the equation. Those who argue that race is biologically either insignificant or meaningless would point to a few interesting facts. One is that the amount of genetic diversity in all of humanity uh, if you look at that, 90% of that can be found within anything that's defined as a race, right? Like within Europeans, 90% of the genetic diversity is there. If you if you include then Asians and Africans, you only pick up an extra 10% of genetic diversity. Does that make sense? Yeah. So another way to state that is that there is more genetic diversity within a population than there is between or among the population. Steve, that one was especially powerful to me. I actually, this is funny. I read this in a toilet stall. I've written on the wall. Somebody wrote that on the wall. <laughs> and, and I was what like, and I had kind of an epiphany. I was like, damn, that, that's such a compelling argument. And, and, and then in another, in another place, I think in some documentary, they were saying that, that, you know, if I'm Italian. Well, guys, we're Italian and Swedish. 75% Italian, 25% Swedish. If I found another guy in the United States that is the same ratio, the differences between us could be could be greater than the difference between me and some guy who grew up in India or China. And mm-hmm. to me that that's a powerful that's a powerful fact. It's pretty diverse. Somebody, yeah. Right that, that and to me that made that made racism in, in a sense, you know, just naked in front of you saying that's such bullshit. You know, how could you be so tribal when you could be closer genetically to somebody uh, somebody completely different from you? Right. But that fact includes all genetics. It's not just phenotype. Right. And I'm interested if when you actually whittle down just phenotype, just the genes that code for outward appearance, right. how different things become. Because one thing that, you know, you mentioned medical, you know, medical differences, which I know you'll get to, but what you don't talk about in your article, and I watch a lot of forensic files, so this is my armchair forensic science uh, happening here. I see all the time that when they find bodies that are just bones, they'll try to do all these different analyses to figure out if they fit in one of three categories. And forensic scientists legitimately use these words, caucasoid, negroid, and mongoloid. Those are actual terms that forensic scientists use to talk about three major groups of like bone structure of the face and of the skeleton that they can kind of discriminate yeah. Where somebody is sort of ethnically or, or racially based on on their skeleton. So I do wonder if that 10% difference grows to something closer to 60 or 70%. I'm just throwing that out there once you only look at phenotype. No, it, it actually doesn't. Interesting. Uh, uh, but here's the thing. In fact, it may be less, you know, because huh. uh, a lot of the differences are in non-coding regions. But, um, uh, yeah. but in any case – you're you're touching on a, a a different way to look at genetic diversity and mm. you know the landscape of genetics among humans. So again, there's so many different ways you can look at this. So that one way is can be by itself very compelling. There's there's more genetic diversity within a group than between groups. Sure, but that's partly because the the different groups have been mixing the, throughout our whole history, right? So there's no there certainly are, is no are no pure 
subpopulations. There are no pure groups. Mm -hmm. Humans migrate and they interbreed all that we swap genetic material. So think about it this way. If you just had one African spread their genes into a European population, they would be contributing much of the African diversity to the European population, right? right? Mm -hmm. So it's not – when you think about it that way, that there's interbreeding, then – that it makes sense that most of the genetic diversity is going to be spread around the whole world, you know? Sure. Um, we're what we call an outbred population. We're very outbred. So in any case, so that kind of makes sense. But then Kara is sort of looking at it a different way, which is, okay, but can you use statistical genetic differences between groups in order to sort individuals into those groups? And the answer to that is unequivocally yes, you can do that, whether it's morphologically on certain bone structures or genetically. And this study has been done and replicated where if you take 100 people and you sort them into three groups randomly, and then you do uh, an analysis of their genes and you resort them based upon shared genetic you know, mutations, you actually do sort them with very high fidelity into huh. Euro- Europeans, Asians, and Africans. You can do that mm. very easily. So if if that's your criterion, can you use genetics to sort people into groups? And the answer to that is yes. Then you might use that to argue that those groups, therefore, are real, that they are biologically meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so in other words, one is does it predict anything? Yes. It's what's the relative amount of difference. It's actually quite small. It's only 10% of all the diversity. And humans recently passed through a bottleneck, right? Yeah, that's So just right, yeah. as a species, we have a lot less diversity than many other species. Yeah. So, you could, so the overall diversity within the human population is small, and most of that is – is shared throughout all populations. Only 10% of this small difference separates different identifiable groups. Almost everything that makes the equation that you have to calculate into the equation, it applies to humans. Like we we do yeah. non-random mating. We like live on island. Like there's just everything that you could possibly yeah. imagine humans do. Now, Steve, I wonder if we never went through that bottleneck, was that what, 10,000 years ago? 80,000 years ago? No, 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 like 120,000 years. 120. So that that was a period of time where where the population literally went through a bottleneck where we we were reduced to our lowest numbers. Was it like 10,000 or 100,000? 2,000. Yeah, like just a minimal breeding population. What was that? 120,000 years ago. That's why there's the mitochondrial Eve. Yep. Right? That's why Mm -hmm. only one mitochondrial group. Survived through the battle, the bottleneck into modern times. Wow! Right? So Amazing. you could you could trace all of humanity to one common female ancestor. So but, in so the yes, bottleneck, right? So my point is, what kind of diversity do you think, Steve, we would be seeing today if we never went through that bottleneck? I mean, yeah, it would be a lot more. It'd be like more like a typical species. Uh, what's also interesting is that uh, we lived in Africa for a long time and developed most of our diversity in Africa. And then one small group went through a bottleneck, migrated out of Africa, and then is rep- represents all of the, the the rest of the world, you know, Asians, Caucasians, everything else. So most of the genetic diversity is actually within Africa. And then right. everything else is one sort of tiny branch of Africans, you know. So in a way, we're all Africans if you look at it that yes, way. That's exactly. interesting as well. So that's the other thing is that if you – breaking it up into like Asians – Europeans and Africans is so arbitrary because 
it's giving way too much weight to the it's not cladistic, you know what I mean? Like it's right. It's not. It's giving way too much weight to the Euro- Europeans and the Asians in terms of the overall genetic depth, you know, and diversity, and or take, yeah, lump, and then swing. lumping in most of the genetic diversity into one group. So that's where I mean. I think those groups are so socially and historically constructed, and they're not really representing the genet the, the landscape of genetic diversity among human populations. But again, we get back to this question: is 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 race, quote unquote, race biologically meaningless? And I've read a number of researchers, you know, looking at this question, and and it, I think the one that summed up uh, what what my impression from reading all this was that it's not meaningless, but it's different than what most people think. It, first of all, it's not as big. The differences are actually very tiny compared to mm-hmm. most species. Uh, it's and we're very outbred. Lots of intermixing. Um, but also, it reflects our migratory history and our history of isolation. So the you can trace the human, you know, human migration by the way we intermixed our genes. And then the more geographically isolated the population is, the more uh, isolated their genetics are. It so it perfectly follows an evolutionary, you know, history of the human species, exactly what we would expect. So one other argument which I found very interesting is uh, the question of is the distribution of uh, genetic diversity among humans there's no question that it changes as you as you go from one region to another. Genetic patterns change. No question about that. But mm-hmm. is it clinal or cladistic? Right. What's clinal? Clinal means uh, there's no discon- discontinuities. It's just a gradation from one to oh, the other. Oh yeah. It's like what's the difference between tall and short? There's no oh, discontinuity. Yeah. It's a it's a continuum. It's a spectrum. And that's get just gets more and more murky the more breeding that de- like yes. places like America are probably much more forget murky America. than places like China. <laughs> yeah, forget America. Yeah, it's America. like I mean, almost impossible just, here. Yeah. But all right, so if you th- and the argument goes that there is no obvious place to draw the line. Right? Cuz even even at the continent level there's there's no obvious discontinuity. We only see discontinuities in this continuous gradation of 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 uh, genetic d- diversity when you get to like island populations mm-hmm. that right. are that are that have been isolated like like Australian Aborigines for example. So uh, so for a true t- discontinuity, you would need a, another. You would need like a Neanderthal. Yeah, right. That that would right, be right. a discontinuity. Uh, but you could argue, and I've argued that that is a bit of a false continuum fallacy. Like there are still tall people and short people, even though there's no objective line between the two. So. The fact that there is no discontinuities doesn't, and that the where we draw the line is somewhat arbitrary, doesn't mean that you can't say that there are some people who are more African than European or Asian, and other people who are clearly more Asian than they are European or African. That still ha- is biologically Sh- meaningful. Sure, it's it's fuzzy. Yeah, it's fuzzy. It's fuzzy. It's blurry at the edges. The intermixing breaks down the boundaries the the middle east forget about it that's the thoroughfare of the world and so their genes are all mixed up but if you get yeah, you know it's far like you're enough 90%, away you're 90 percent tall and 10 percent short it's a it, you know it's a it's a grouping yeah. of uh, characteristics yeah 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 and obviously there's going to be tons of people who can't be slotted into groups because they're they have mixed heritage so yeah i think that at the at the end of the of all of that Rate, if you think, are there identifiable subpopulations within humanity? Yes. But the differences are small. And there's lots of intermixing. We're very outbred. 
uh, and there's no obvious way to draw the line, so it's it's ultimately arbitrary. But you can use genetics to reliably sort people into these okay. uh, genetic subpopulations. So mm-hmm. in that way, it does have meaning. You know, I've always heard that black people have sickle cell anemia, as an example. Like, yeah. they're more likely to have that, right? So is yeah. that true? They're, only, they're the only ones that are likely to have that. No, it's it's gotten into other populations as really? well. Really? Yeah. But it started there. So that, let's get – that ship pivots to the medical question. And I was writing about this. I was responding to an essay which actually they they downplayed the medical value of – of, of race or ethnicity, and I didn't. And now I'm a physician, so I, this is mm-hmm. something I have you know day to day expertise in, and I completely disagreed with their take on it. So the medical profession completely ignores this entire argument and practices as if race is biologically real. And in fact, this is uh, this is a fun fact. If you do not take into consideration the race of your patient when you prescribe certain drugs, you are literally guilty of malpractice. There are differences in certain genetic frequencies that affect response to drug, including serious side effects. So, for example, if you prescribe Tegretol to an Asian without testing them for the sensitivity, that's malpractice. But you can Ah. prescribe it to a a European without testing for it. That's fine. Uh, So as a physician, you ask, is is race, ethnicity, however you want to draw the line or whatever, taking into consideration somebody's heritage – is that biologically meaningful? The, the 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 answer is unquestionably yes. Of course, it's biologically meaningful. We day to day we consider that it influences the the our probabilistic thinking about what disease someone is likely to have. Now, sickle cell anemia is not a hundred percent restricted to Africans, but it certainly is a lot more common. Uh, I wouldn't wouldn't be the first thing on my list in somebody from Sweden. Now, the, the counter argument is that, yeah, but if you over rely upon a simplistic notion of disease frequencies or response to medications, et cetera, based upon perceived race or heritage or whatever, that you can make mistakes based upon that. To which I say, yes, so what? Yeah, that is generically true of all of medicine. Yeah. That's like, it's like, the same, all of this applies to gender, by the way, as well. So, like, for example, men are more likely to have heart disease than women. But and that does cause women to be underdiagnosed with heart attack, um, because they because they're not typical, right? So they're not a typical patient. So yeah, that's true. So if you that's the I, I lecture my students about this all the time. That's the representativeness heuristic. That's a logical fallacy. You you don't you you base your diagnosis on predictive value, not on how typical somebody is. So you need to know the percentages and knowing someone's ethnicity helps you know the percentages and then that helps you diagnostically. But you shouldn't think that only people who are typical of a disease will get it because you'll be wrong often enough that you're not practicing good medicine. So it's just – that's a fallacious argument. The notion that some people oversimplistically you know, misuse this data doesn't mean it's not biologically or medically meaningful. It absolutely is medically meaningful. And then other people said, well, heritage is just a, again, it's just a statistical piece of information about genetic risk. Risk. You should really just individualize. I'm like, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, that's where we're headed. You know, maybe in a hundred years, you know, essentially, yeah, we sort people into demographic groups and then we have statistical information, epidemiological information about those groups, and we use that to guide our 
diagnosis and therapies. And we're trying to get more granular, more and more and more granular with, by doing research. Eventually, we may be able to just test your DNA and then know on an individual level with all your genes are. We won't have to guess what your genes likely are based upon your heritage. Absolutely. And as soon as we can do that, we will. Until then, yeah. using, using things like gender and heritage and, you know, ethnicity, et cetera, as a, uh, way of giving us, you know, a statistical leg up on trying to guess what your genetics likely are is perfectly reasonable and it's biologically meaningful. So yeah, I just, my interest in this is that it's, it's scientifically generically interesting to think about categorization and where you draw lines and how you define categories. But also, I'm interested in the critical thinking angle of how you compose arguments, you know, how you use logic. And what's fascinating about this topic is that it's really complicated. It's different than what most people think naively. And there's uh, enough information there that you could make whatever argument you want to make if you're willing to cherry pick and just huh. you know, emphasize certain arguments, arguments or value certain points over other Ignores points. Ignores others. Yeah. yeah, you could make, yeah. you could, you could defend either side pretty reasonably. Uh, I think at the end of the day, my answer is it's there's no objective answer. It's you know it's just you have to just look at all the data, look at all the arguments, and and understand that there's no objective answer here. But don't don't hogtie it to your ethical considerations. You can be against racism and privilege right. and the historical oppression of groups without feeling that you need to have a scientific opinion about the distribution of genetics in the human population. You know what I mean? So anyway, uh, you know, hey, if you have a different opinion than, than what we stated, please let us know. I just ask that you be respectful. You know, we're just trying to understand the science and the, and the critical thinking here. And, you're, you know, I totally acknowledge that this is a topic where a range of opinions are perfectly reasonable. There may be a way of looking at this that I didn't discuss that you think is relevant. Let us know. There was a lot of useful conversation about this on my blog on Neurologica. Uh, and and you know, part of the reason why I wanted to write and talk about it was to generate discussion because there are so many potential angles here. So, Steve, Italians are not predisposed to talk with their hands. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's culturally constructed, Jay. Talking with your hands. Seriously, if you if you you know take anybody of any cultural of any genetic heritage and raise <laughs> them up in an Italian household, they'll love meatballs and talk with their hands. <laughs> well, that, well, that's a stereotype but we'll, we'll ignore that <laughs> uh, you're Italian you're allowed to I can, yeah, I can, I can hey. endorse Italian stereotypes because I am Italian alright guys well hey let's go on to science fiction it's time for science or fiction Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake arena, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. I'm just being edgy there. <laughs> and you guys can play along. <laughs> Steve, don't ever get a lip ring. It just wouldn't go <laughs> No, no oh lip God, ring. Please get a lip ring. And a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Big old tattoo. All right. Are you guys ready for this week? Yep. yep. Cool, Daddy. Three regular news items. Here we go. Item number one. A review of the last 31 years of video games reveals a steady increase in the number of highly sexualized female characters. Item number two, astronomers report the first discovery of a supernova that appears to have exploded twice. Item number three, MIT scientists have developed a prototype theater 
that allows for glasses-free 3D. Evan, go first. Number one, a review of the last 31 years of video games reveals a steady increase in the number of highly sexualized female characters. Jeez, that's a lot of games. Uh, I mean, I think numbers alone would sort of uh, say yes in a sense, but I suppose it's really you have to look at it more of as a percentage yeah, over percentage, the years. Percentage, yeah. I think we are trained in sort of a way to believe that that is the case. I think we could also say the same would be, you know, obviously with more violent video games and violent sex, you know, maybe somehow drug culture has also crept its way uh, in increased numbers into the video game industry. Um, so that that's interesting, but I don't know. I don't know if that one's right. Number two, the astronomers report the first dis- first discovery of a supernova that appears to have exploded twice. I guess the first explosion didn't get her done, as they say. There was enough yeah. material to go again and uh, make sure it uh, they got it right the second time, whatever was, was left over. Which leaves MIT scientists develop a prototype theater that allows for glasses-free 3D. Wow, I think this one's science as well. Uh, we already know that glasses-free television in 3D exists, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so why couldn't it be in a theater... For the theater environment, I, I see that one being entirely plausible. All right, I'll say it's the uh, I'll say it's the video games. Um, although the like I initially was going for the number of games obviously has increased so much in quantity, but as a percentage, I think it's probably been about the same. Okay, Kara. Okay. Um, review of the last thirty-one years of video games reveals a steady increase in the number of highly sexualized female characters. I bet you there's a, been a decrease. I don't know. Okay. Astronomers report the first discovery of a supernova that appears to have exploded twice. I have no idea. I thought I read somewhere something about a supernova with rings. <laughs> but that sounds crazy now that I'm saying it. No, a star with rings. That probably doesn't relate to this at all. And then MIT scientists have developed a prototype theater that allows for glasses-free 3D. I hope that's true. I'm going to definitely say that that one's true. I, I would disagree with Evan, though. I don't think we have 3D glasses-free TV yet. Um, maybe we do. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that it's it's science that MIT is developing this prototype theater do i go with the one that i know less about which would be the supernova or do i go with the one that feels like it could be tricky which is the video games and i think i'm gonna go with tricky because steve you're tricky so i'm gonna gwe and say that video games have not had a steady increase in the number of highly sexualized female characters although that feels wrong even as i say it (laughs) (laughs) trixie false uh, I'll take them backwards. So the MIT scientists that developed this cool prototype 3D glasses-free theater, very cool. Uh, I wouldn't put it pa- past those bastards at MIT to be able to pull that off, and that would be awesome. <laughs> I hate wearing the glasses. This supernova that appears to have exploded twice, my God, there's a filthy joke I can say about that. I'm not going to say it because Evan is here. Uh, uh You know, Sure. Stars explode. Sometimes they're so pissed off they explode twice. Okay, why not? The thing I'm pretty damn sure about is that this first one about the 31 years of video games and the increase in the number of highly sexualized female characters, I am very sure that that is not correct because I've played most of the video games that came out over the past 31 years. And uh, would you even consider that anecdotal? 
I don't know. I yes, guess because I'm not conducting real research. Yeah, but, you know, come on, Bob. It's me. So <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, this is not true because that's not what my perception is of my experience playing video games. So I would say that this one is the fake. And Bob. Yeah, I'll take it backwards as well. 3D, gl- 3D, <laughs> uh, 3D glass-free movies. Yeah, uh, it's time. I mean, I, I could see that the, that's been developed. I, I guess they have to make a pretty big sweet spot for the audience, uh, depending on the size of the audience. But I think that's doable. I've heard of prototypes for things like uh, computer monitors and stuff. Uh, so that makes kind of makes sense. Uh, the exploding supernova. I'm trying to think of a way that that could actually happen. Um, the the only thing that makes sense is that I think the the important word here is appears appears to have exploded twice. I think one way I could see it happening is a, a regular supernova that leaves a, a remnant like a neutron star, or pulsar, or even a black hole, and then there's a collision with another with another star, and that collision uh, causes the uh, another supernova. Um, that's one way I could think of that happening. Uh, that kind of makes sense. Uh, the first one though about the video games, yeah, that, that's just one that, of course, that has to be true, which makes me immediately suspect. And, um, I kind of agree with Jay and just anecdotally, um, I don't think it's necessarily true. And I, I think 20 or 30 years ago, who the hell was even thinking about over sexualized female characters? I mean, that was probably not in anyone's head at that time. They didn't give it a single thought. 31 uh, years ago was the 80s, Bob. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that one is fiction, the over-sexualized, highly sexualized female characters. Oh, so you guys all agree. GWG, yep. go with group. All right, so <laughs> I guess I'll take these backwards then. We'll start with number three. MIT scientists have developed a prototype theater that allows for glasses-free 3D. You guys all think that this one is science. Evan, let me first say that you are correct. There is a TV that has yeah. glasses-free 3D. Really? But you have to sit in a very particular yeah. angle sweet spot, to yeah. The, yeah, the sweet spot, a very, very, very narrow sweet spot. Uh, the problem with a theater is that you have people sitting all over the theater. And so there is you can't have a very narrow sweet spot. That's the trick. But this one is science because that's what the MIT scientists figured out how to do this. Do you know how the glasses-free 3D works? Yes. Tell me. They blast your inner eye with lasers. Yeah, that must be it. Yeah. Is it like um? <laughs> yeah. Is it um, a screen that comes out at different angles? Yeah. So what they do is they use uh, what are called parallax barriers. They're essentially little slits in front of the TV screen, so that you each eye is getting exposed to different information. Right. So the right eye will be able to see through one half of the barriers and the left eye will be able to see through the other half of the barriers, right? Parallax barriers. I thought that was a cool term. Oh, I like it. Yeah, but you have to sit in just the right spot so that your, you know, your, your position to those barriers is correct. Otherwise, the, you, the effect would not work. You can't sit on the couch, you know, on the other side of the room and get the same effect. But in, and in theaters, that's a huge problem. So what the researchers, the key insight, apparently, that allowed them to develop the prototype was that people will move their head only a very small amount throughout the course of watching a movie. So they, for each individual person, they have a very narrow range where they need to be able to see with the parallax effect, you know, the 3D effect. So that enab- enabled them to uh, have a, use an elaborate system of what they call of lenses and mirrors 
in order to so that no matter where you are in a in a theater you will get the 3D effect. But still, it was a massive array of lenses array. and mirrors. Mm-hmm. And this is a prototype, so don't get excited about this anytime <laughs> soon. Right. This, this screen is about as big as a sheet of paper. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, so they, had, they were <laughs> able to make it work, though, for 50 seats arranged kind of in a theater array, but... It was a very, very small screen. So the question 50 is... 50 seats watching a piece of paper. The question is, can they scale it up to a re- reasonable movie theater size? And will it be practical financially and otherwise? All right. Yes. So, How do you scale yeah, it? It yeah. works in theory. That's why it's at a prototype. And you know, it, may, it may work at some point, but I don't think it's... Just not, don't look for this next year You know, in theaters. But And one other problem with the theater 3D... The cinema 3D, as they call it, is that uh, you sacrifice a great deal of resolution. Screw and that. To, but, but with their method, they were able to get decent resolution. So you oh. can have a consistently high resolution from a wide range of angles, but they need an elaborate system of lenses and mirrors. And so, yeah, it's still maybe not ready for prime time. Uh, but it was an advance in cinema 3D. Glassless, mm-hmm. Glasses-free cinema 3D. Okay. They've started. Yep. They're on their way. Right. Okay, let's move on to number two. Astronomers report the first discovery of a supernova that appears to have exploded twice. You guys all think this one is science, and this one is also science. Yeah, Uh, baby. So, Bob, you're wrong. This is not a (laughs) supernova followed by a collision and another supernova. This is an actual supernova that had... Two explosions. So it's, sing, what's the white dwarf? Supernova. Is it a white dwarf then? Uh, what type of supernova? It's a classic. Not a white dwarf. Explosion? Okay. Nope. It's a superluminous supernova. That's Su- cool. Super, I've never heard that before. A superluminous supernova. We've only, I, we've only observed about 13 ever. And uh, astronomers recently observed, had the best observation of one that they've ever had. Uh, in cl- basically observing the entire process of the supernova. They were alerted. They happened to catch it right at the beginning, They and they turned a telescope yeah. to it right away. So the superluminous uh, supernova, instead of lasting for weeks, can last for six months. Wow. And it could be 100 times as bright as a typical supernova. Hence, what? Superluminous. Hence the name. Yeah. It's what massively the bright. Hell? These are bright as hell. So what they saw was that there was an initial brightening – and then a dimming for about three days, and then a bigger, much bigger brightening. So what they suspect happened was that the this was a massive star, maybe 200 solar masses. It threw off about the equivalent of one solar mass uh, in the first explosion, and that was an expanding cloud of gas that created the first brightening. But as it expanded, it cooled and therefore got dimmer, so then you had the three days of dimming. And then the core collapsed. Uh, into a magnetar, which is Ooh, a rapidly, yeah. rapidly spinning neutron star, and that was the second massive explosion. So that's that's their current model of what happened. Uh, but this is the first time they've they've observed this, so they have an n of one, uh, you know, observing it through through this double dip, you know, this double explosion uh, that they're calling it. Um, so, so the other still- the other superluminous supernovas then didn't have the double the double dip. Well, no, they didn't observe them long enough to know. This is the oh. only one they've observed long enough to know. They didn't catch them early on. So that so they do not know if this was something unique or unique? unusual about mm. this 
superluminous supernova, or if this is something that all superluminous supernova do, they will have to observe more of them in order to sort that out. So yeah, they don't know that basically because again, they just this is the only opportunity they had to see it. They saw it, but they don't know if it's unique or generic to to this type this type of supernova. So yeah, pretty cool. Very pretty pretty cool. Yeah. All right. All of this means that. A review of the last 31 years of video games reveals a steady increase in the number of highly sexualized female characters is the fiction. Yeah, baby. Uh, now, initially, during this time period, there was a fairly steady increase in the sexualization of female characters, which they attribute largely to the fact that if you go back, you know, to like so this, they started looking at titles released in 1983 through to 2014, right? So 31 years. What they found was that early on, most of the video games were highly pixelated. <laughs> and <laughs> there really wasn't much of an opportunity to sexualize those female stick figures, you know, in the game. Mm-hmm. So essentially, as resolution increased, sexualization of the female characters increased. Of course. Uh, peaking in the 1990s. Uh, and then it stayed high for a while. But in the last maybe 10 years, there has been overall a decrease in the over hypersexualization of female characters. For some reason, there's this peak in 2012. And then it dips down again in 2013. I think I know why. There was a, what game did that? I don't know. What was that game? Call the Booty? No, I think it was... Uh one game wouldn't do it, but I mean, yeah. The game is Mass Effect, and you could pretty much have sex with every girl in the game. Yeah, okay. Mass they Effect let, was they, a blip. They let the you do that? <laughs> Mass Effect. That's cool, Kara. Well, you could also have sex with <laughs> hookers yeah. in Grand Theft Auto. That's oh, cool. yeah. <laughs> that was cost the thing, right? So cost they attribute this shift in the last 10 years. Again, this study didn't look at that. They were just counting up you know, the highly sexualized female characters. But they say that uh, there's an increase in the number of female coders in the gaming industry, and there's an increased interest in games among women, and that both of these things have uh, caused, you know, video game companies to make games that might be a little bit more appealing, you know, across a broader gender spectrum, you know, not just to, you know, horny guys. There's also just like more awareness of the yeah, fact that I think, I think so I think it's awareness there's culturally more, more yeah, we're shifting you know I think video games themselves have matured you know what's what is your favorite video game of all time for for me it was probably Diablo and 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 Doom those are my favorite mainly for the social thing I, I was at work I was working in, in IT for the first time and I met some friends and we would play after work and at lunch I even played yeah. with my boss so I would never get in trouble which was awesome so the, in terms of you know just the, having a blast the, but then with I can't also discount you guys you know City of Heroes and City of Villains with you guys was was like so much fun I, I mean, City of Heroes would be maybe a potential favorite of That's all mine. time yeah, I played. I spent more time playing City of Heroes than any other game I ever played. So that has to be my favorite. So many, so hard. I know. Uh, right? <laughs> Twisted Metal Two. Oh my God, did I love playing that game? We were very competitive with that. We used to round robin that. Remember, guys? Then we also, um, yes, of course, City of Heroes. And then um, back in the day, we used to play Ghouls and Ghosts round oh robin. My that God, was oh. epic. Oh my God. Epic time. <laughs> But games that I played by myself, I mean, I've played a lot and I've enjoyed a lot of them. But to me, I've I, again, I'm always going back to the games I play with other people because the dialogue 
and the camaraderie to me are so much more fun than right. sitting there burning hours away by myself. Exactly, Jack. Kara? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> the video game you've played the most. Oh, or the um, video you like the most. I played such different games than you guys. Like when I was growing up, I was really addicted to my NES. So I didn't really cool. play computer games. So, so that's okay. That's okay. I played NES a lot game? of like, I'm like, you know, I don't know. I'm like a girl gamer. I played a lot of puzzle games. I played like Dr. Mario. I love Dr. Mario. I also played... You know, games like Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. My dad got me into Spy vs. Spy, if you remember that from like the comics. That was a okay. game. Mad, Mad yeah, Magazine. Yeah, there was a Spy vs. Spy. Yeah, from Mad Magazine. There's a Spy vs. Spy game on Nintendo. Um, huh. And also Contra. Zelda, maybe. And Contra. also Simon's maybe. Quest. Those were big games I played. So it I remember a lot of, Simon's Quest. Yeah. yeah, it was a lot of um, games with plot lines or puzzle games I tended to go towards instead of fighting games or first-person yeah. shooters. Or no, if there was fighting. Yeah, if there was fighting, it had to be part of the plot. Like Simon's Quest, uh, there was fighting, but it was part of the plot. Boring. Yeah, it was more fun <laughs> for me to have a mission than plot. to just like destroy and then like turn it off yeah i have to say i think i had the most fun playing the social games or the massive multiplayer games and mm-hmm. city of heroes was the pinnacle of that we but still laugh our asses what off was the, that game. the oh best gosh. game i played i think the best single video game i played was portal 2 Ooh, really? everybody that awesome. says that port that like every awesome. person i know that's a big gamer when i tell them i don't really game they all say i should play <laughs> portal it's awesome. Yeah, Kara, because it's mechanic. Awesome. It's mechanical. Yeah, you it's like to, solving puzzles. You would love it. Right? You would yeah. love it. It is. It's and, not a lot of like talking to stupid characters in the game and having to go collect shit. It's all about trying to get through to the next it's room. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. And the the plot that they do have is hilarious. The characters that you <laughs> are incidentally interacting with are, are wonderful. So yeah, Portal 2, highly recommend that. Right now, I'm into Fallout 4, which is like crack. That game <laughs> really is, crack out four. It is, yeah, it is amazing <laughs> because it's the perfect combination of killing and building. Really, yeah. <laughs> What's amazing to me, it's Steve, is that you Steve. have <laughs> any time to play video games. I did at I have all. my downtime. Like well, I do six hours of straight post production. I need to reward myself with some mindless. <laughs> Hell yeah. Games. Yeah, Steve yeah. does that and I go cut the lawn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, I've worked a full day on Saturday already. <laughs> 12 noon, you've been, you've done more than everybody's done all weekend. Okay, Evan, hit us up with a quote. I'm sorry, but that's completely ridiculous. You claim that anything's real if the only basis for believing in it is that nobody's proved it doesn't exist. And that was spoken by Hermione Granger, of course, from the Harry Potter series. The book that's The Deathly Hallows, and the author is J.K. Rowling, a series we all love and enjoy, and there is uh, some skepticism to be learned through Harry Potter. So thank you, Evelyn, for sending that in. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure. Thank you, Thanks, Steve. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and until next week. <laughs> Steve, wait. 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 <laughs> You're cool. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. 
You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. 